Good morning. It's been a good week for, for, for youth workers uh, present and past uh, here at Valley View. The uh, Cabot was engaged. Uh, that's before this past week, but you probably saw it in the bulletin for sure. And then Michael and April had their baby, which uh, I, I'm going to try to describe for you what Michael looks like now. Um, has anybody seen The Walking Dead? Anybody seen that show? I love the show. It's, it's one of those I just enjoyed. But he looks a lot like that right now, but he thinks he's happy, and that's really cool. Do you realize that he named his daughter, they named his daughter, their daughter after an Auburn football player? Um, a guy's name and, and gave it to her, and I, she's going to make that name great. But anyway, we are excited for them and look forward to meeting her uh, in the near future. Um, we are in Matthew chapter 15, if you'll be joining me there in just a second. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Bible tells me so. Tony did a great job of reading that passage, but uh, uh, if, you, if you listen that carefully, something really odd about what Jesus does in that passage, and those are the kind of stories that fascinate me most. This particular one is almost like somebody kidnapped Jesus and it's somebody else, because he doesn't act like a savior that we think of would act. So a woman comes up to him and very respectfully with words of faith says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Her daughter is demon oppressed. We would all legitimately say this is a true need, right? We would all agree that's the place to take it to Jesus. And so she does, and she's just with, with this intensity of spirit and heart coming out of her mouth, says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and help my daughter. And the text says this, he answered her, not a word. Stone silence. He ices her out. Crickets are heard. This is not what I expect Jesus to do. He just, I don't know what he did in that awkward silence, but I'm, I'm seeing he look at her, her look at him, and he just basically ignores her and goes on doing something else. It's a really odd thing, but she doesn't give up. She then goes around to all the 12 apostles, right? She goes around to all the disciples saying, get your master to do something. Do something, intercede for me. And finally, they're like, Jesus, would you heal her already? Get her out of here. She's just making all this noise. Do something. After the awkward silence comes the disciples appealing for her. And he, again, answering her, but not speaking to her directly. He's talking behind her back now. He says to the apostles, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm here only for Jews. That's a very ethnocentric thing to say. Sorry, you're not a Jew. Can't help you. That's problematic for a couple of reasons. Is what kind of Savior would do that? Second, she's, he's, he's already done this. He healed the centurion's servant. He was not a Jew. And so he's already kind of broken this rule, set up a precedent, and yet, without talking to her, he lets her know, because you're not a Jew, can't help you, sorry, go away. This is not what I expect Jesus to do, but it gets even worse. 
Finally, this woman says, I know the only solution is you. She throws herself at Jesus' feet and just says, Lord, help me. You're the only one who can answer this. Help me. Throws herself at his feet. And now he looks at her and says, can't take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Calls her a dog. He would definitely lose his talk show today. This is a hate crime. This is terrible. This is not what you would expect Jesus to do. Imagine somebody come up to the church and say, hey, I need food. And we say, sorry, sorry, you're what? You're Mexican. You're a different skin color. That's what Jesus does. You're a dog. And, and you, I can't take, take bread that's been provided for the family that's on the table and feed the dogs with it. Dog insults this woman. This is Jesus, guys. I, I'm looking at him like, what is going on here? What are you doing? But the woman stays in there. She absolutely refuses to budge, and she looks at him and says, yeah, but even the dogs get a little bit of the crumbs that roll off the table. And Jesus almost lets out a breath here, almost with relief says, you're right, for your great faith, go and be made well. And this daughter is healed from that moment. This is such a weird interaction uh, that Jesus involves himself in here. Such weird responses, and you're left wondering, what are you doing here, Jesus? This seems so out of character. And I'm telling you, it's not. It's not all that out of character because this deadly silence is part of every believer's life. This has been part of history and all of recorded history when it comes to Scripture. Abraham, a friend of God, is told by God, you're going to have, uh, I'm going to start with you and start a whole nation of people. But can you realize that, that he only spoke to Abraham a handful of times over a number of years? He promised him a child. 25 years later, he gets it, but there's, no, there's very little conversation in that 25 years. It's mostly silence. Joseph in prison, we remember this. I don't know how long he was in prison, but two years after he was supposed to be remembered by somebody he saved out of there, or at least told him of the salvation to come, he's sitting there praying every day, God, bring me out of this mess. This senseless misery of being in this jail makes no sense to me. It's no value to you. Get me out of here. And silence, nothing. It is going to be part of the Christian ex experience for you to see and feel the silence of God. I want a show of hands. How many of you have experienced a strange se season of silence with God? Anybody willing to say so? And the rest of you either interpreted it wrong or you're just not going to hold up your hands. You come before God with something very concerning to your heart and you lay it out before God and it's like he's sitting on his hands. He does nothing. He doesn't respond. It's just silence. Some people lose their faith over something like that. And this story kind of shares with us some things, some insights about what we should do when we're experiencing that season of silence that all believers will endure at various times. First of all, I want to say this. You're experiencing a season of silence. Keep the communication line open. Now, some people are going to say, why in the world did you use an old landline phone as an illustration to this? And here's the answer to that. You can't tell whether a cell phone is on or not just by looking. 
You push a button, you push that same button to turn it off, and you can't tell. An old landline, you can tell. This person on this phone talking to God, that symbolizes your relationship with God, and he's completely silent on the other end. What do you do? You don't hang up. You don't hang up. You keep that conversation going and you keep talking even though it seems like you're getting stony silence from the other end. You try a different prayer tactic. You try different wording. You try a different posture, but don't hang up. We're told this in Scripture. Jesus himself says it. And that's what's so weird is why would he need to tell a parable like this? But this is Luke chapter 18. I want you to see this. You know the parable. I'm not as interested in reading the parable. You know what it is. A woman who needs justice. She's been wrong and she goes to this judge to get justice and he ignores her. He won't put her on the docket at all, get, doesn't give her the time of day, and she comes back day after day after day after day, and it wears him out, and he's sick of this old woman. Here's another day of the week, and that woman's going to be in my office again. I'll tell you what, put her on the docket, I'm going to give her what she wants so she gets out of my way. And Jesus says, you need to be that way with God. What? Well, what's the moral of the story? Jesus says it very clearly before he tells it. He says, to show them they should always what? Pray and don't quit praying. Now, some people are going to come to me and say, well, yeah, the thing is that we trust God. You should only have to come once, and then you lay your heart out to God, and then you just say, I trust God with whatever, and you go on with whatever you're doing, and don't worry about it anymore. Well, for some things, it can be like that. But for some serious stuff, it can't be that way. Just think with me a second. How many times did Jesus pray the exact same prayer the night he was betrayed? He went back and did it how many times? Same exact prayer three times. Well, shouldn't he have trusted God and just go with it once? Apparently not. That's what Gary James said in the first sermon when I said, shouldn't he just do it like that? And Gary James says, apparently not. And that's exactly right. Apparently not. Apparently there's something in the repetition that serves Jesus. It's not like he's trying to talk God into something, but he's doing something in Jesus that that repetition matures in him. Paul did the same thing when he's wanting that, 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 that thorn in the flesh out. And after that third time, God tells him. After the third time, God lets him know what it's in there for and why he cannot remove it for him. Taking a prayer, something that matters to you, something that's dear to you, that you long to see, and you can't imagine this is not the will of God, and you go before him and you beg and you plead over and over and over again, something about that God has asked us to do. He wants us to engage in this. It's not just once and forget it. I think of Psalm 88, this weird thing. The only psalm I know of that ends with the word darkness, and there is no solution. There's no resolution at all in the course of Psalm 88. It is the most downing, depressing psalm in the entire Psalter. It is terrible. And you read it, and you're like, all his friends are gone. He's tried everything. Nothing works. And he's here at the end. He says, and he, he just ends it, and I'm in total darkness. And you're like, what's the redeeming value of that psalm? The psalm itself is a prayer. The point is, he's going to keep talking to God all the way through the darkness until the light dawns on the other side. The one thing I will not do is stop my praying. Believers need to do that. We're told this in a number of ways. Paul tells 
Timothy what widows should do in First Timothy 5, 5. The widow who's really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to what? To pray and ask God for help. When you're in real dire straits, you've got nowhere else to turn, you keep praying. And the old rock song would say it like, keep knock, knock, knocking on heavens three times. Right? Ask, seek, knock. Jesus saying over and over again, the song says, knock, 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 knock on heaven's door. Just keep knocking on the door. Just make God respond. Or here's a better way, Epaphras. Colossians chapter 4. He was a Colossian himself. And Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. And so, wrestling in prayer, do you get the idea that he kind of sits here with a glow of heaven lining down, and he just says, God, help them be firm in the faith. And then he gets up and he roasts marshmallows. Is that how the picture you see? The picture I see is he wrestles, he grapples, he fights. He's like wrestling with God saying, God, I want these Colossians to be firm in the faith and to be rooted and to have a faith that sustains everything in life. And he prays it over and over and over again. I want you to know, you have an eldership and a preacher at your church who prays for you not once, but over and over and over that your faith grows and matures. And it's not enough to ask once. Week in and week out, urging God to give you what you need to sustain your faith over time. He wants us to keep doing this. Don't ever get up, give up from it. Even if God seems to be silent, don't you remain that way. Keep talking. That's what this woman does from the moment she enters the scene in Matthew chapter 15 to the time she quits. She's not silenced. She won't let the disciples silence her, won't even let Jesus silence her. She keeps talking, and we need to do the same. Keep consulting Scripture when you're in this season. Even if God seems to be silent in your circumstance, God is not totally silent. He's still speaking through his word, giving you direction. And he's even describing for you why the silence comes. Psalm 22 is one of the places you would go to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer by night. I find no rest. I'm getting, I'm getting nothing from you. I'm hearing silence. I get no response from you. And he writes about it in this psalm. And this is David. I don't know what his circumstance is. No one does. But he's going through a dry season. He's going through a season of silence. And he feels forsaken by God. And he writes it down. And he keeps going to him. And as the psalm develops, you find out that God isn't silent at all. God very emphatically speaks by the end of it. David was never alone. And do you know anybody else who's quoted Psalm 22 before? Have you ever heard this somewhere else before? Jesus on the cross, he was feeling forsaken. He was feeling isolated and alone. And what does he do? He keeps talking to God. He keeps crying out using words that believers through the centuries have always used when they've experienced this season. God give us, gives us words to give voice to this deep yearning within to have God respond, and he doesn't seem to be so. But we trust that he is. We never stop talking, and we never, consult, never stop consulting his word. What's it say? There's this theme in Scripture constantly called waiting on God. It's on all the Psalms. It's in the New Testament everywhere. The most famous one is Isaiah. 
Listen to the end of this. God's wise. God is very aware of what's going on with you. He knows everything going on with you. And at the end, he says this. Even youths will faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. But they that wait on the Lord, those that wait for God to speak into what seems to be silent, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The Word says this, there are going to be seasons where it feels like God is doing nothing. There are going to be moments when He's not moving, when there's not some dramatic progress in your story. There's going to be days, there's going to be seasons where it's a mundane kind of silence and you're wondering, where's God in all this? Just wait! Just wait! Don't rush the story. If you rush, you make mistakes. It's called the Ishmael Principle. Abraham didn't wait, did he? He went ahead and used Hagar to bring forth Ishmael, and the world's been fighting ever since. And the world's going to fight to the end of time. You know what they call it? It's called the Ishmael principle. If you don't wait on God and do it in his timing, you will screw up the world. It's true. It's true. What do you do when it's silent? You keep the communication lines open. You keep consulting Scripture. And here's another one that this woman did. You reach out for fellowship. One of the most powerful responses that you need to make to the season of silence that's upon you is to reach out for the community to help you wait. It is an established fact, and it's why you have a waiting room in your dentist's office. The reason they put a waiting room in there is when people are waiting for torture... Their blood pressure goes down when they wait with other people who are also expecting torture. That's true. You put all these people in a room, they're all going to experience this traumatic thing together, and by being together and sharing it, they divide up the tension, and it lowers for everybody. That's what a waiting room is for, and it's supposed to lower your blood pressure. And God uses the waiting room tactic in in his people all the time. He makes us wait for things. And he says, but I'm not going to make you wait alone. My design is for you to wait in community. So the worst thing you can do, church, when things go haywire in your life and and all these difficulties come and and the spirit and the season of silence comes upon you, the worst thing you can do is quit coming to church. It's the worst thing you can do. That's what people, I'm going through a difficulty in my marriage or with my kids, so since I'm difficult, I can't be there, so I'm going to remove myself, I'm going to isolate myself, and it's going to make it terrible. God designed the church for this, to share life, to endure the season of silence. Look at all those verses that require other people in our lives, things like bear one another's burdens. If you're not helping to bear a burden of somebody in this room, what is your membership for? But then again, if you have a burden you're unwilling to share, how can we help you? How is it possible that those of us who are here to bear your burden can bear it with you if you keep it to yourself? And if you sit here and say, well, if you really love me, you'd know that's baloney. That is absolute bull, right? It's because there's no way that any of us can read each other's minds. I know it because I've been married a long time. I still can't read hers. And I'm not going to read yours. You're not going to read mine. We've got to make it known. And you can't be in isolation and make it known. We come together and we share burdens like this. 
Scripture does this too. 2 Timothy chapter 4, you have this great apostle Paul who we think is a rugged individualist and he's facing the last days of his life and he's in turmoil. There's only one person with him. It happens to be Timothy. It happens to be Luke. And he wants Timothy. And he says to Timothy, you get somebody else to take your place up there at Ephesus. I want you to take some, let somebody else take your place and you get down here as soon as you can. I want you with me. Paul is saying, I need a kindred faith person with me. I need my son in the faith. You get here as fast as you can. And there are people in this church who are going through an isolated time of silence that you need to get on the phone and you need to say to somebody else you trust in this church, get over here. I need to share this with you. And they will come if you will call. But if you insist on bearing it alone, don't get mad at the church for not sharing it with you. The number of times people tell me after the fact that they were three days in the hospital and no one came to see them, but they refused to tell anybody they were there, I'm a little perplexed at you. You are a nutcase. We cannot come visit you if we don't know you're there. And if you don't want it to be direct communication, send it from your neighbor or something. I don't get you. Let us know you're there. We'll show up. But if you don't, it's a sure thing we won't. And if you don't, don't come crying to me. It makes no sense. The worst thing you can do in a season of silence is endure it alone. And God never intended you to. This woman didn't, and we shouldn't. But this woman keeps coming. She goes to the apostles. She says, Jesus, son of David, which means she knows Scripture. She knows who he is. And then the last thing I would say to you is demonstrate faith by staying put. Just refuse to leave God's presence. Stay there in his presence with expectation. This woman didn't walk away mad. She didn't do what Job's wife said. What was Job's wife's counsel to Job? Curse God and die, which is the reason why God kept her alive and took his children. She was part of the curse. But either way, as Job was going through that whole experience, she says, well, just curse God and die. This is bad anyway. No, I'm not going to do that, and this woman doesn't either. So there's Job and his story with all his possessions gone, all his family gone, except his wife. And then there's a boil on him. You know, there's boils all over him. And yet he refuses to budge from sitting in the presence of God, looking at God, saying, I'm expecting an answer. And without realizing that this trauma was producing something in him, he grows through the book. He doesn't realize it's happening. What he views as senseless and a total waste what he sees is an irresponsible act of God to not respond. What he, does, what he perceives as totally senseless becomes a tool God uses to grow him immensely. By the end of the story, he says this, My eyes, I've heard about you in Bible class all my life, but now I've seen you. Now I've seen what you do. I've experienced it. You can't do this without the silence. He stays right there. Silence for the believer is not a sign that God's disinterested or that he's abandoned you. He's growing you. 
And as you stay there and you hold on and you tie a knot on the end of the rope and you hang on the best you can as the winds blow and the waves crash, as you do that, you're growing. You don't even know it, but you're growing. And like when Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, after all these people left him, after this hard saying of truth, he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says for all of them, where are we going to go? We have nowhere else to go. Right in the presence of God. I think Jesus must have known this lady's faith, and he used all these tactics to draw out of a faith that was stronger than she ever imagined it was. She elicited from her this amazing response of faithfulness, and I think God through silence does the same for us. You are so much stronger than you think you are when you believe in God, when you believe in his Son. You are so much stronger, but you'll never know. You'll never know until you go to Haiti and you face it, and the only thing you got is a prayer, and that's all you need. You'll never know it until these experiences happen to you, and they draw them out of you, until your child is put in the NICU, right? Until you go through some awful experience. Until you do, you don't know. You've got everything it takes to get through anything in life. And God sometimes gives you a period of silence. A dramatic pause in your life where you have to sit and think and wonder, what am I going to do here? And you stay there in his presence and he draws you out and you become stronger than you ever thought you could be. He'll force delay. In our instant gratification culture, the worst thing you can do is make somebody wait. And every believer, because of God being the one who's sovereign over us, is forced to wait. And he uses the waiting room technique. What we want is a totally pleasurable, timely experience of the blessings of God. We want Christian maturity the day after we're baptized. We don't want the stretching and we don't want the dramatic pause that God forces in there. We don't. But if we're thoughtful about this, even as parents, we know this is not true. You cannot give your three-year-old a shotgun. I don't care how many times he asks you. You can't do that. And I'm not just talking politically here. I'm saying you can't give a three-year-old a shotgun. The parent knows this, but the kid doesn't. He's seen some of them. He thinks it's neat and there's nothing wrong with guns. But when a three-year-old comes up and says, I want my own shotgun, the answer is no. Not yet. You've got to be quiet for a while. You've got to grow. You've got to figure this out. You can't let your daughter drive at the age of seven. Now, if it's out on the farm, that's one thing. But you can't drive on I-555 at seven years old. And she's going to want to, and she's going to ask you to over and over again. And you, if you are the responsible, responsible adult, will not allow that yet. You're going to force a pause. You know better than this. They don't, but you do. And you see, you are a child. You are a child of God, and he knows better than you do what you need at this moment. And when he forces in a pause, it's for your good. You just got to learn to trust that that's true. Too many people take on the anxiety of their kids, and they give in too early. And that can be as detrimental as the delay. When we went through the Myatt experience, that's what I call it, the Myatt experience, maybe, maybe if we had real faith, maybe we as a church would have asked God one time. 
Maybe you, as a believer, would have asked God once, Dear God, please be with this child who's just been born, and he's in Memphis right now. Please take care of him just once, and then you get up and you never think about it again. Maybe that's real faith, but I don't think so. I think something happened to this church because of that boy. I think it happened because we went over and over and over and we found every conceivable argument and every conceivable word and posture we could find and we begged him. And it wasn't as if God's not going to respond until we had 1,800 transmissions with him. It's not that. Something happened in us. Something changed us. It's more than just the life of this child. There's something in this process God was doing. He didn't heal instantly. He didn't take care of it miraculously. Something required our investment. And I'm going to tell you this. I know I'm not a doctor and I did nothing to help, but when he came home, I felt a personal victory. I wrestled for this kid. Did you wrestle for this kid? It changed us. And every time I look at that family, my heart warms because of the process of thinking about that family every single day for weeks. I love that family. Do you? Something happened in us. It made us family. And when Haiti people came back, listen, I wasn't over there. I can't fly a helicopter, but I got them out. Anybody feel that way? I got them out. You hear what he said up here? Your prayers were felt. The peace they had was from our prayers. I did my part, and I love those people. Those five people, their family before they left, their family when they were down there. But I love those five like I've never loved them before because daily I wrestled with them, and I loved every minute of it. That won't happen with a simple little prayer one time. There's an investment in this thing. And when Harold and Wanda come forward on a Sunday, not to confess their sin, not to repent of any wrongdoing, but to say, you know, we're scared to death because of what's about to happen in two months, and we want to ask for your prayers. They're not asking for one prayer. They're asking for us to put them in, their, in our lives and take them into our lives and start investing ourselves in them and start feeling and taking part and being a part with them. And their answer tomorrow, if you want to call it that, is something very near and dear to me. I'm thinking about it all the time. I love that couple, and so do you if you've prayed like that. There's something happening in you when you do this. There's something that changes changes you and it's not just that it also makes me realize there's a lot of things we could do but we are all dependent on God there's a humility that I've gained because you know what there's not a cotton picking thing I can do for any of those circumstances at all except beg God but I can do that and I will do that over and over and over and over until something happens. I think this is how it's supposed to work in praying for your enemies. People say, I don't love them. I don't have a high regard for them. Go and pray for them anyway. And when you pray for three or four or five weeks every day about your enemies, suddenly something changes in you. And I think maybe that's God's design. It has nothing to do with your enemy. And it has everything to do with you. But only if you do it. One of the things, I, one of the ways I knew my kids really wanted something for Christmas, I've said this before, they would never just come up and just once say, this is what I want. I've got my heart set on this and just say it once. If they only said it once, I could disregard it. Maybe they saw a, a recent commercial, been to a friend's house and saw this one thing they thought was neat, but then it kind of drops out of their want list. 
They don't really want that. But whenever they would come up with something and they would say it over and over and over and over again, I knew then it's something they really wanted. And they knew the only way they could get it was to say it to me or, or, or Santa, maybe. And I think that's what God thinks. How bad do you want something? And how aware are you that I'm the only one who can give it? And because of that, and these experiences with health, I'm just talking about health things in the last few minutes. Think about this. How bad do you want victory over anger? How bad do you finally want to get rid of the control of lust has over your heart? Put that in your prayer and wrestle with it for days and days and days, and God will know you really want victory over it. It's not just about people and health. It's not just about circumstances and conditions. It's also about your own spiritual walk with God. How, how bad do you want a walk with God that's so close you get rid of sin and gossip? We don't know the answer to why God operates this way using silence. We have some good ideas, I guess. But I've learned to trust he knows what he's doing. He's the father. He's the authority. And I am the child. I'm relying on him, and he knows what's best. And at the end of the story, a woman, he says, knowing that he just drew out of her as great a faith as he knew she had, a woman, great is your faith. I love that. It was done just as she desired, and it may not be done just as you desire, but I'm going to tell you this, the greater answer is, O woman, great is your faith. I want the kind of faith where God looks at me and says, Oh, Spencer, I love your great faith, but I can't get there without having to wait sometimes. So I put this in a quote. You can tweet this if you want to. Our faith won't be great unless we faithfully wait. And there'll be seasons of having to wait, but listen, you want that great faith? You have to go through those, and you have to trust in the meantime, doing all the things God's asked us to. I don't know if you're waiting on anything, and maybe a response to the sermon today is you've been waiting for something, and you're losing your patience, and you want the prayers of this church. Listen, that's a legitimate going forward prayer. Or maybe it's a person who said, you know, I've been waiting for the right answer, the right feeling to decide to, to serve God. And I'm not going to wait on the feeling anymore. I just know I should serve God and name him as Lord of my life and be immersed in the waters of baptism. Come on, it's perfect for that. Or if, for whatever reason, you became a Christian and you have let God's silence drive you distant from him. And instead of drawing close, you're getting drifting off and you're seeing it. And you're realizing you need to change directions. The best thing to do instead of leaving here and being bitter still is to come forward and have the prayers of a church that understands what silence does and can surround you. Whatever response is appropriate for your heart today, now's the time to make it as we stand and as we sing. Okay.